This program is brought to you by listener support and a donation from All Street Studios. All Street Studios is having an art party for friends and supporters on Saturday, July the 24th from 7pm. There'll be music by jazz group Bags Fly Free, food and drink from local restaurants, plus a silent art auction. Tickets are available online at allstreetstudios.com and also at the door. You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so happy to have you along for the next hour as we head out for a statewide tour of the arts. Our Missouri Arts Council featured artist tours are always busy shows and this week is no exception. We're off to St. Louis to visit a jewellery artist, Kansas City to meet with a firework residue artist, Jefferson City to chat with a bluegrass Americana singer-songwriter and then back to Columbia to chat with a mixed media artist who is a bit of a local arts celebrity. So if you're ready, here we go. I don't remember when I first met the jewellery artist Alison Norfleet Bringer, but I do remember thinking that she was unforgettable in the loveliest way. Her passion for creating works of beauty that are imbued with her own desire to lift people's spirit is inspirational and part of what makes her unforgettable. Alison has won so many awards for her work that I could feel the next 15 minutes just reciting them. So I'll just say a lot. Her studio is in St. Louis, but she has been a regular visitor to Columbia for many years, showing her work at the Art in the Park and Fall into Art Festivals, as well as at Bluestem and Missouri Crafts on South 9th Street. And I am so thrilled that I get to chat with my friend, Alison Norfleet Bringer, on this week's show. Good morning, lovely lady. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everybody. When I think of your work, the first thing that I think of is how you call each of your works your babies, which is so indicative of how much love you pour into each one of your designs. Of course, then you sell them. So that makes you a slightly odd mother. But (laughs) (laughs) it's adoption. Tell me about your relationship with the works you create. Well, it actually starts for me with a sketch. I'm one of those people who actually... Even though I'm not as technically wanting every little piece to fit certain ways. But for me, I have to plan everything out. So everything starts off with the sketches. I start sketching out the design and that I include a lot of different aspects into my pieces, such as drawings that are sealed and then put into the piece. I just spend so much time with them. So I'm going from the drawing to hand sawing to fabricating, sometimes adding color onto the metal, then sometimes doing the drawings and painting, sealing those that, and then riveting everything together. So I spend so much time with them. They become my little, my little babies. And then I I look at it as my adoption center is my booth. So (laughs) they get adopted out to their new home and some people post pictures and they show, hey, I'm wearing one of these pieces and I got it from this art fair and this artist and you got to check her out. And then I said, 
oh, my baby has a good new home. <laughs> How long do you work on it? One of the bigger designs, the necklaces, the pendants that you do. I mean, is that a week's worth of work? Basically, yeah. I have a tendency to work on multiple pieces at the same time, though. So that's it gets kind of dicey of knowing exactly how long, but it's a, a strong amount of hours because I'll, like I said, just sketching it out. Sometimes I'll resketch a couple of times and I'm one of those odd people. I actually sketch with an ink pen because I get to the point that when I'm laying down an actual line, I want to commit to that type of shaping. I will redraw it, but if I have a pen and pencil, like pencil and eraser, it's never going to go anymore. So that by that time, it's it's a strong amount of time and not a strong amount of hours, but it's a labor of love. So that's the good thing. Well, I mean, you didn't start out in, uh, well, you did start out in fine art, right? You don't have a fine art degree, but in, in retail advertising with an emphasis in fashion illustration. Yes. So, so when did jewelry enter the equation? It's an interesting story. I basically, I when I was younger, I said, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to end up in New York. I ended up getting my first degree towards that area and everything was fine. And I actually did art shows where I hand painted different type of clothing and I would design the clothing and then do the imaging and started out that way. Coming to St. Louis, though, my husband was getting a second degree and We came to St. Louis, and I ended up working at a craft alliance in the, it was was at that time, the Del Mar Loop. It's now since moved, but I was a gallery assistant. They said, oh, you could take classes. And I said, well, okay. And you can have them for free. I'm like, ooh, that's nice. And (laughs) I ended up taking a couple of jewelry classes and metalsmithing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then a couple of the, the department heads, if they said, you might want to consider, you could get another degree. There's a place there, Maryville University. And we know the teacher, she's really a good teacher. I think you need to run with this. This is, this. I think it's in your wheelhouse. And I wanted a way to combine my drawings and paintings that I've already in that fashion. And then I love drawing. I love painting and the metalwork and and ended up with a second degree from Maryville University studying under Sherry Jardace. And that's how this all kind of, just because my husband was getting his degree, I I guess I wanted to just follow him. (laughs) I mean, your notebooks of your designs are works of art in themselves because you really start from this fine art perspective and your love of painting and drawing. Do you ever think about, or maybe you do this, do you ever frame and sell your artwork designs? I have not as of yet. At the different art fairs, I will have the books out as the actual piece sells. I actually have the person who's purchasing the work signed by their drawing of their piece. It's almost like my little log. So I almost keep those almost like my own personal log. But with some of the different events I have done, especially for charity organization. Sometimes I will actually take the piece, take my drawing. And if there is an actual drawing that's on the inside, I make a copy of that, put it all into one frame so that customer will get those pieces. But I haven't haven't really thought about selling the actual drawings. I just love to show them because sometimes people will say, well, this is a really nice piece. Where did you get 
I always got these odd questions. Where do you get the components to put this together? And I'm like, well, no, no, I, I, I created, I hand saw, I said, you know, jeweler saw in a dream and, and then I'll lay the piece onto the drawing and then people really get it. Like, oh, it's from that drawing all the way to what I'm wearing. So, and then I say, yes. So I keep them around as the connection so they can feel that, that whole a line of how it actually came from drawing to what they're wearing. How would you describe your jewelry to people who haven't seen it or people listening on a radio, say? <laughs> I I definitely makes media assemblage jewelry. I'm a person who really wants, rather than the art being on the wall, I want the art to be with that person. They can wear it and then they don't have to worry about having a dinner party and having, you know, showing the pieces on the wall, they get to wear it with them wherever they are. I really want it to be that wearable art piece. I like them to all be each one original. I have certain lines that I have somewhat multiples of, even though they're going to be different within themselves because I'm hand making each piece. But the larger ones that you're speaking of, I make that one. It is retired as soon as it finds its home. I write the date and it's over. That person owns that original. They don't see that. They don't see their self coming and going. One of the things that is incredible about your work is that every piece is unique. But there must have been times when you felt like, oh, man, I really nailed this particular design. And you know you could sell it 10 times. I mean, how do you stop yourself from repeating designs? The way that I kind of do that is that I want it to be such an original piece and I want it to be that that belongs to that person, that that part of it, that connection with that customer, that patron. I really want them to feel special that they don't go and they say, oh, well, which which show were you at when you got yours? And that just that idea kind of makes me just my eye twitches. So, <laughs> so I just I try to just really look at the fact of creating that piece letting that piece go to its home. And then it also helps me to say, well, I can't remake this. It helps to open me up to new materials, new products, new because I'm always finding different ways to create new pieces and to be able to kind of express where my direction is now. So it, it's, a, it's a win-win in that way. It's kind of a bad if, you know, if it's something I totally love and I'm like, geez, I won't be able to. But then I always look and I, I have a lot of friends who, you know, different workshops, different things from across the country say, hey, you should try this new product. Or, hey, have you looked at that? And so that helps to ease that. Oh, geez, I can't Keep make it fresh. It. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it, or I can't make that again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what is your own jewelry collection like? Are there babies that you make and you just cannot part with? Yes. <laughs> yes, there there has been some. And so usually at an art fair, you'll see me wearing like these specific maybe five or six pieces that I get to the point like, no, I I, I can't do it. I, you know, I've actually placed them out, put the price tag on them. And when I find someone getting ready to pick it up and I find myself like, like a small bead of sweat goes on the side. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, mm, 
And then they end up going to another piece and then they find their baby. And I'm like, ah. And then my husband's usually, James, my husband's usually with the shows with me. He's looking at me like, don't you dare. And I'm like, okay. And then the next thing I know is I pack everything up. That one gets packed aside in my luggage. And then the other, you know, it's like, so the next day, I have a new tag out. I have another piece in that spot. He said, yeah, you did it. I said, yeah, I can't let it go. Uh Uh-uh, no, no, can't do it, can't do it. Is making your jewelry a full-time job? Yes, yes. At this time, definitely. I uh, used to work for a bead store, and they ended up closing. And once that happened and I, my hours started getting dwindling down, I found myself saying, well, either I go and get another job or I go ahead and go full tilt into doing doing the shows and doing my art. And I started just to really research galleries, to represent myself in galleries, to do the different shows, the exhibitions. So that's how it became uh, more towards full time. But you find out that it's kind of hard if you've already applied for shows, you've got accepted. And then your job says, well, we're not going to have hours for you. And then you try to get a job and they say, oh, we need you weekends. That's not going to work. So I just had to make that decision. It's like, I love what I do. I really do. And so I said, well, let's just go for it. (laughs) Are you ready to get back to festival life or does it make you anxious? I noticed that you are scheduled to be at the incredibly hard to get into St. Louis Art Fair this September. Is that super exciting or is that quite nerve wracking? Literally both. I did not do any shows during this situation with COVID and even into this time frame. So I'm basically, I want to say a year, a year and a half, because my last show would have been 2019. I think if I'm not mistaken, it would have been Fall into Art. I was in Columbia. And <laughs> so I'm excited to be back. I am excited to show I miss people. I miss customers. I miss that half of it. But I am very, very, very anxious about how everything is. I, I'm trying to dip my toe into it. The thing about it is that um, a lot of the shows that we had planned for 2020 were canceled. So a lot of the actual committees, they decided to move those people to the next year. So now that they have moved everyone to the next year, you either are going to be stepping out of those shows completely and lose your place or you're going to do it. And the St. Louis Art Fair is not one to walk away no. from. And I, 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 in 2019, I ended up winning the Emerging Artists Award. And that was part of showing full my own booth and everything. So I, I want to go ahead and finish that completely up and I'm really excited about it but that's making me a little beyond nervous <laughs> one of the top in the country and that's your first show you're jumping right into it back in it's a big one well Alison Norfleet Brunger's jewelry can be seen on her website at alnbcollections.com and if you're planning on going to the St. Louis Art Fair on the weekend of September 10th through 12th you can also see her works in person, hopefully. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Alison, you are always such a joy to be with. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate this. 
If you Google firework artist, there are multiple entries. But if you Google firework residue artist, then only two people come up, one of whom lives in Kansas City and is my guest this morning. Kyle Selly started his artistic life as a sculptor and ceramic artist and graduated with his BFA from Kansas City Art Institute in 2017. But these days, it is his celestially reminiscent firework residue paintings, which are opening gallery doors across Kansas City and beyond. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Kyle. Hi. So as this is radio and not a visual media, we should probably start with a description of what a firework residue painting is. Maybe if you tell us a bit about your process and describe the end result, we can conjure up a verbal picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, So the process is uh, I usually work with the canvas horizontal flat on the ground and it's all use smoke bombs to create all of the color and uh, different fireworks that sort of crawl around on the canvas or some that pop and crackle and those create different marks so they leave ash and residue and they also burn away from the canvas so sometimes it'll create holes in the canvas where you can see all the way through which is a kind of an interesting thing that I've played with a lot recently And then the end result is uh, they typically look, um, it's fully abstract and it's usually kind of um, otherworldly. I refer to them a lot as celestial landscapes. Um, I use Hubble telescope images uh, as inspiration pretty often. So yeah, that's kind of like a a brief overview. Are you working always on canvas or sometimes also on paper? No, I've worked on a lot of different material. More recently, I've been working on glass and plexiglass. And so I'll do this process on the backside of a piece of glass or plexi and then seal it with paint. And then the other side of the glass that the marks kind of show through is what you're looking at as the the finished product. Do you make your own fireworks or do you have a box of fireworks in the same way that an artist has a box of colored pencils or oil paints? Yeah, I have a box that is um, that is mostly fireworks that I grew up with and I'm very familiar with. It kind of connects me to younger days and um, they're just very nostalgic for me. And so I like using the sort of basic fireworks that I've been using all of my life and Yeah, I see it more as like a a process of painting almost with, like you say, like having a box of pencils or paintbrushes more than interesting things that I could do with building my own because the the work really is about the finished product. There's an artist named Saigo Shang that I really uh, admire. And most of his artwork, though, is about the actual exploding of the fireworks you know and most people that are building their own fireworks are most of the time is it's about the explosion and watching that whereas i'm more interested in what marks the explosion leaves behind so it isn't quite as much about what the fireworks do as it is about what's left over and so i found that there's you know, a lot of different things I can do just with basic fireworks. You know, there's like endless exploration. And so 
right now I've kind of kept those creative boundaries sort of in that realm. So I know you have a you have a sponsorship with a, a fireworks company in Beijing, but when you're talking about fireworks that are nostalgic to you, are you are you talking about things that anybody could buy in a fireworks store before the Fourth of July, or are they specialty fireworks that are built with certain colors so that you you know what you're laying down on the substrate on the canvas or paper? So there's two different uh, types of fireworks that I use, I guess. And one is smoke bombs, and those I'm very particular about. They're hard to buy individual colors, and not all of them are like as vibrant as I would like. I use a black background often. So when you use like a yellow smoke bomb over that, it really just doesn't look like much of anything. Um, and then some of the blues also are like very dull and less interesting. So those, you know, I travel far and wide to try and, and find those. Dominator will ship me them sometimes, but you can't just order them off the internet. You really have to buy them in person. So those I'm very particular about. The mark-making fireworks are really just basic fireworks that you can find anywhere that anyone could buy. So usually like crackle bombs, um, I've been experimenting with a lot, like big and small ones, and then um, jumping jacks and ground bloomers. And then for my ceramic work, I'll use just regular fireworks, like just pop fireworks, like black cats in wet clay. So how much of your process is about control and how much is about just kind of letting go? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've thought about that a lot and it's been an exploration of that over the years where, you know, when I first started doing this process, I really, I wanted it to look a certain way and I wanted to control it and it just wasn't, you know, it was possible with different techniques, but I just wasn't happy with the end result. It looked kind of contrived. And so it's really, um, it's a balance, you know, it's, it's not trying to control it and let them do what they do. But also over time, I have a better idea of what they are going to do. So I don't really need to control them as much. I sort of know roughly what's going to happen. And then after I light off that firework and I, I think that it's going to make this kind of mark and it does something totally different, well, then I sort of react to that. And um, I really just have to take it one firework at a time. I can't have like a preconceived, this is exactly how it has to look. Because then if one of the fireworks does something unexpected, which they tend to do fairly often, it kind of messes that up. And so that used to frustrate me, but now I just see it as part of the process and I enjoy it. You write on your website about the spontaneity of your process, like you're just saying, that it's erratic and exploratory and also meditative. Do you have to put yourself into a sort of Zen state before you start on a work? Um. I think that it's during the process that that state occurs, you know, with the artwork that I was doing before I started using fireworks, uh, like just with traditional pottery or um, sculpture, you know, there's moments where you decide like, okay, what's next? And then 
a lot of that process is then doing that, you know, and you step back every so often, like a painter would kind of step back and look at the overall composition, then you make a decision and then you go in and fill in those details. But with the fireworks, it's like after every single firework that I light off, I'm stepping back and looking at the overall composition and reacting to what that firework just did. So it's something that I've, you know, that kind of process is just part of art making, but that constant concentration and deciding what is next kind of puts me in a state of real, real concentration and consideration. And I stay in that for the duration of the work. Well, presumably also you've got to be pretty safe with it too. Otherwise you are dealing with explosives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The main concern is that, you know, if a firework shot off in one direction that it would hit a box full of other fireworks. So I make sure that everything is in plastic containers and I have several fire extinguishers, but for the most part, I mean, I work in my garage, everything is concrete. And like I say, I kind of know which fireworks could do something totally unexpected and which ones are, are pretty tame and are likely to stay confined to the area around the canvas. So what was the impetus to move your art practice from ceramics and sculpture to working with fireworks? So I first fell in love with pottery and ceramics in high school. And then I went to Johnson County Community College and I studied a lot of ceramics there, but also sculpture. And then uh, when I graduated from there, I went to uh, the Kansas City Art Institute and I decided to do the sculpture department uh, to enroll in that department because they were just very open. There's people in there doing, you know, sculpture, photography, all kinds of interesting new mediums and combining different mediums. And so our first assignment in that class was to use an unusual drawing instrument or an unusual canvas. Uh, and we had to do several experiments with that. I think we had to make like 10 different pieces. And so one of mine was uh, to use fireworks. And honestly, like it, it wasn't that great of a result, but I just had <laughs> so much fun doing it. And it seemed like it had a lot of potential. So I stuck with that. And then one idea just led to the next. And it's just always felt very authentic, I guess. It's like a genuine process that I really enjoy. And there's not a lot of like the, the struggle is, um, you know, cause I kind of see the creative process as sort of a, a battle with this piece to try and get it to be something that is acceptable to you and something that you feel like is really finished. And that process has just kept me engaged and really been fulfilling and enjoying. And so I've continued to do that. You talk about nourishing a relationship with fireworks since your childhood, which is an interesting choice of word. It makes me think of the plant Audrey too in Little Shop of Horrors that just wants to be fed the whole time. So <laughs> tell me about your use of this word nourishment and, and what that means to you in terms of fireworks and your relationship. I think it's really, it's probably similar to um, a lot of people's experience with them. You know, I would... Um, I would go out to a uh, small town where my 
cousins lived in western Kansas on the 4th of July to light off fireworks because it was legal there. And we just found very unusual ways to use them, just (laughs) blowing things up. And I would always buy a ton of fireworks while we were out there and bring them back to uh, Kansas City. I grew up in Johnson County, so they were kind of forbidden there. They were illegal, and but I would still find interesting ways to use them throughout the year. And I guess just as I got older, that became something that seemed a little immature or, you know, I was just, I was doing stuff like that less often, but creating art with them felt like a really, um, a real way to be able to connect with that and continue to experiment with them. I mean, I'm sure a lot of my neighbors that don't know that I'm an artist probably think that I'm just kind of weird. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, my fireworks in his garage all the time. Like, what kind of hobby is that? You, know? you should invite them over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've let several of them know just because I've gotten looks and been like, it's art. It's <laughs> I'm not just a strange guy. But yeah, it felt like a way to continue to nourish that relationship that I had taken a long break from. And I think that most people that were really interested in fireworks in their younger years probably had that experience. And so it was just like combining these two things, my passion for visual arts with a passion that I always had for fireworks that I had just slowly moved away from. And once I reconnected with that, it just felt right. Well, firework residue artist Kyle Selly's work is on display at the Englewood Row Gallery in Independence, Missouri during this Friday's Art Walk. And you can also see Kyle's work at the Beggar's Table Gallery in the Crossroads District of Kansas City from August the 6th to September the 14th. But to see a full list of Kyle's upcoming shows and his art, visit his website at Kyle Selly. That's S-E-L-L-E-Y, KyleSelly.com. Kyle, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into the world of firework art. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been fun. The very first day I set foot in Missouri, I stopped in on a bluegrass gathering at the Prater family farm in the tiny town of Fillmore in the northwest corner of the state. On stage with a Martin family, a trio of women called Southern Rain, the Arlington family, and it was really the first time I had listened to bluegrass. Little did I know at that point that Missouri was going to become my home. But my next guest this morning has been steeped in bluegrass his whole life, having started singing at the age of three in church and with his dad's band on stage in Branson. As an adult, his career has included spells in Los Angeles, he has sung at Carnegie Hall and performed at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, and these days he lives in Jefferson City, and I am so happy he could join us this morning. Welcome to the show, Ray Cardwell. Thanks, Diana. Thanks for having me on. Well, you have so many twists and turns in your career, Ray, so let's do this chronologically and go back to toddler Ray singing at church at the age (laughs) of three. What do you remember about your early childhood and music? (laughs) You know, I I just always remember there being um, music involved from my dad's band and then from being in church my whole life. That was just the way... I always grew up my, and I don't remember when I sang, 
the first time my mom said that she didn't even know. And, and the Sunday school teacher just marched me up there in front of the whole church. And I sang, Jesus loves me by myself and <laughs> brought the house down. I'm told, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure it was very adorable. So I mean, your dad's band, Marvin Cardwell and the Country Boys, were one of the first ever live music shows in Branson in the 1960s. And you got to go up and sing with them on stage. What are your memories of that? Oh, I have lots of memories playing with my dad's band. Um, there was actually five other shows in, and I believe the Presleys and the Baldnovers were first, but we were at a place, a tourist place called Jesse James Confusion Hill. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. And you could go around and back and get a piece of marble out of this rock and stuff. And I remember uh, reaching in there and the guy would tell me, don't reach in too far because there's scorpions that drop in there. And of course, I you know quickly drew my hand out and <laughs> never reached in there again. But uh, um, there was a fort there and we played outside and it was 25 cents to get in. How about that? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and did you just kind of do occasional performances or were you a regular on stage with them? Oh, no. I was much too young to to hold the crowd yet, uh, although I probably would have tried. <laughs> I um, my, my two sisters and I would get up and we would just usually sing one or two featured songs and that was it. And it was pretty cool, though. There was a live broadcast out of Aurora, Missouri, and we would broadcast the show onto radio on Saturday nights. And, and that was pretty big doings for a little kid. But that was pretty cool. That was one of the things that I noted when I went to that bluegrass festival at the Prater family farm was how many of the bluegrass bands were really families. And it was such a family affair. It wasn't something that I was used to seeing. So in those days when you then you had a band with the rest of your family, uh, with your sisters and your parents, I mean, was that was there a circuit of bluegrass kids that all hung out together? Did you compete with each other a little bit? <laughs> well, you know, um, I guess so. I I didn't really think of it that way. I mean, there was I don't know if we ever really competed with anybody else. Um but we were definitely in the mix with a bunch of them. Um, there was the Crouch family from down around Branson, and there was the Cowton girls, all oh, the Cowton family. Those girls could really sing well, and they were from Branson as well in that area. And there was just several different barns that people played at or festivals. I can remember going to Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Have you ever been there before? I have, yes. Yeah, that's I, it's one of my favorite places in the world. But, um, there's the auditorium there, and you used to show up at 2 o'clock and sign up, and, you know, first come, first serve. So all the families or the groups would sit on hay bales on the stage, and we would wait in our turn, and we would sing two or three songs and then, and then drive back to Springfield, Missouri. So um, there was competition, you know. But I think it was all in friendliness. It's uh, nobody was cutting somebody's <laughs> strings or, or or giving them flat tires like that. But uh, it was an interesting way to grow up. So moving on, you went off to LA. You were into rock and reggae, and then you came back to bluegrass. You spent time in Nashville. How did you end up back in Jeff City? Well, yeah, I was raised in Springfield, and. After I came back from Hollywood, I started pursuing my college degree, and I went to Drury University and went there for several years, and 
not enough though. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I met my future wife and she was from Jefferson city, Missouri. And I followed her back up here around 89 and 90. And I've only moved away twice. And that was when I lived in Nashville. I is kind of my second home. I, I really like it here. I like the small, the small town sensibility, but it's also got the bigger city because of the government and stuff. So it's kind of a nice mix. Well, let's chat a little bit about your music. It is a combination of bluegrass, blues, country, rock, and gospel. And you have a four and a half octave vocal range, which the music magazine Bluegrass Unlimited described as a powerful force of nature that can tackle anything he wants to try. <laughs> Where does your voice start and stop? You know, when I was in high school, singing in the choir, I always sang baritone and bass. And I didn't figure out that I could sing high until I started playing rock in the early in the mid 80s. And I found out that I could sing a lot higher. So really, I'm a bass singer that figured out how to sing high. So that's what my range is from. And I think a lot of it came from I was in marching band and um, I played Barry sax, the baritone saxophone. So that, that took a lot of breath to uh, play that thing, and I think that it really developed my voice, honestly. How many instruments do you play? You know, now I play like four or five, but when I was, I was a band and choir teacher for 14 years, so I had to know how to play all their instruments in band and, uh, you know, and, and at least get them to an intermediate level to where I could work with them, you know, from the conductor's chair. Well, what are you comfortable playing on stage at this point in your career? Oh, bass, guitar, and vocals are my main deal. I I play a lot of guitar still, and um, I play a little saxophone. I play a little keyboards, and that's that's probably about it. Well, your mum was a bass player, I believe, and your dad played multiple instruments. So when you're songwriting, what line are you hearing in your head, or what instrument tends to take the lead? Well, you know, it's funny that you would ask that. Um, <laughs> When I first started writing, it seemed like I would always have songs based around the bass line. And I didn't start playing bass until the early 90s. And it just made a lot of sense because it's like, oh, well, I know this bass line because I wrote it to go like this with this song, you know, and and it just made sense. It's like, oh, this. Yeah, I'm a bass player. That's definitely it. You know, I I like to keep it simple and just groove. You know, I'm not a. Not a flash guy, but I like to, to support the song, if that makes sense. So bass takes over. Even though you have this huge voice, you hear the bass line rather than the melody line. Hmm. Now I see what you're doing here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's look at, and I'm not comparing myself to Paul McCartney at all, but even though he had these wonderful, sweet, beautiful melodies, his bass lines were almost contrapuntual, and they would do the coolest things behind what was going on. And I think that's inspiration to me. Does that make sense? Sure. Let's go with yes. Yes. I'm sure sure any musician (laughs) listening will. It'll be making sense to them. (laughs) Well, your latest album called Just a Little Rain came out last September and includes a song called Rising Sun, which you co-wrote with the legendary bluegrass songwriter Louise Branscombe. How did that partnership come about? You know, Louise and I, I've always been in awe of her writing skills and stuff. She wrote 
Steel Rails, which was one of Alison Krauss's first big hits and got a Grammy for that. So she's, she, you know, she's a big deal and she's just a beautiful soul. We, we started writing to each other on social media and talking things out. And then when the pandemic hit, we decided that we should apply ourselves with all this downtime to really reach out and write with people we don't normally get to write with. And, and she and I just, it was like we were having a conversation. We were just writing through all of our fears and our worries and our musings about what was going on. And, you know, it's definitely a fit with the time when it came out, you know? So, I mean, the, the album, Just a Little Rain, is that your COVID album? <laughs> I, there's one song on there. It's about COVID. I don't think the rest of it. No, I did. I did record it right when um, the the studios could open back up again in Nashville, and I ran down there and got some guys to play on there that normally would be on the road. So I think that there were some things that were in place to show it was a sign of the times. Of you know. Um, but no, it's not. Every song is not about COVID. I meant more, was it kind of what you did during COVID, that this was what kept you busy and, and was your muse and kept you from going insane during that period last year? I get it now. Okay, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I figure not every song would be about that. Do you have a favorite track on the album? You know, I songs that I write are kind of like kids and I feel guilty if I, you know, give too much recognition to one, the others will get jealous. But, um, <laughs> I, I really am a big fan of the opening track. Uh, the grass is greener. That's uh, I wrote that with a great bluegrass songwriter and singer named Daryl Mosley. And he and I wrote it together and, um, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, it's about a, uh, man lamenting, you know, I thought the grass was going to be a lot greener and on the other side. And turns to find out that he was looking for something that he already have. And that's, you know, I don't think there's any new revelations there. But it was how it pertained to me in my life. And, you know, be happy with what you got. That's what I'm trying to say through it. Well, let's take a little listen. This is Ray Cardwell from his album, Just a Little Rain. And the song is called The Grass is Greener. I've always had a restless nature I've been cursed with a gypsy soul My back stayed packed and restless as a cat With one eye on the road And the grass seemed greener On the other side Yes, the grass looks greener And I'm never satisfied I've had good jobs and I left them I've had guitars that I sold I've had good love and lost them But I could never stop it Cursed with the wandering soul And the grass seemed greener On the other side Yes, the grass looks greener And at night I Cry. Years and years of searching for something that I already had. Lonesome nights feel a hurting, and a heart is never satisfied. 
My guest this morning, Ray Cardwell, plays regular gigs around Missouri, and you can hear him next at the Serenity Valley Winery on July the 31st. Plus, he'll be playing in Seymour and Jefferson City over the next couple of months. You can listen to Ray's music and see his gig dates on his website at raycardwell.com. Ray, thank you so much for chatting with us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for for having me on. You know, also... I just added another date, and if people are wanting to see me do um, songwriting, busking, I'm going to be in Fulton, downtown Fulton, from 5 to 8 p.m. on July the 29th, and there's going to be three other songwriters out there, too, and we're taking it back to the basics in the streets with the guitar case and, and sitting out in front of me, and I'll go through my whole satchel of songs, so... Perfect. There's another one for you. Yeah. Take your dollar bills to Fulton on July the 29th. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ray. Thank you so much. For the past six months, I have been chatting with each month's Missouri Arts Council's featured artists, and I kept thinking, where are all the Columbia artists, musicians, writers and performers? I'm still a little baffled about their paucity. But this month, I finally get to chat with one of our local arts luminaries, the mixed media artist Lisa Bartlett, owner of Artlandish Gallery, art director for Roots and Blues, mural painter, city arts poster winner, board member, arts activist and person who loves the act of creation. Hello, Lisa Bartlett. How are you? Hi, Diana. I am just doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thanks for all you do with the arts. I am so excited that I get you all to myself for the next 15 minutes. It rarely happens. Yeah. So when I first saw your name, I thought, gosh, I know Lisa so well. What will I ask her? And then I thought, well, I only really know of you really well. I have no idea where you grew up or your early memories of us or the fact that you have a background in computer design. So it turns out that my knowledge of Lisa Gaps are pretty significant. But one thing I do know about you is that your mum... <laughs> sorry, I am in a house full of children. There's 26 of us on vacation and I am hiding in the bedroom in the basement. <laughs> Well, one thing I know about you is your mum is from Belgium. So let's start there. Tell me how your mum and Europe set you off on your art journey, how they inspired you. Well, my mother came over after the war. My grandfather was a a Turk who came to America and became an American citizen and um, then met my grandmother, who was a concert pianist and very involved in the arts, and they actually got caught up in the war and were stuck in Belgium for the duration with their seven children. And my grandmother ended up giving up her wonderful concert piano career for those years. And um, I'm very proud of my family, actually, because they worked for the resistance and the Belgian underground. And were honored by Eisenhower, and then they came to America, and my grandmother continued her career mostly in her church and with students. So I'm very inspired by her. She was a very hardworking artist and musician, and it really was her life. Did your mom play piano? Was there an art component in your visual art component when you were growing up, or was it all mostly music? Well, yeah, it kind of skipped a generation, although my mom is... uh, an art patron and took us to all the wonderful museums. I grew up in Washington, D.C. 
in Alexandria, actually, but we were able to take advantage of all those beautiful museums. And she took us, all six kids, to the museums, and we would look at art. And, you know, that was probably my first inspiration. Did you study fine art? I did in college. I got my degree in um, fine art, painting, and graphic design. I went to Columbia College. Do you still do computer graphic design? Did you give that up and think, no, fine arts is what I want to do? You know, I got a job doing computer-aided design just out of necessity, raising three children and um, living in Columbia. Plus, I got a fantastic job at KOMU-TV. And so it was just a really fun place to be and very creative. I... um, Got to do so many different things, so that was a lot of fun. But I did always want to get my painting studio together. And so after working there for 10 years, I was able to do that. Well, your work is incredibly narrative. You never just paint a scene or a person, but there's always a whole story and a history in each of your works. Talk me through your creative process. Where do you start? Well... There's several series that I revisit. Usually they deal with people of strength who um, have overcome adversity. For instance, like my grandparents living in Belgium during the war and having to survive that. So I deal with races of people in that sense or different groups who have been oppressed but still have this strength and resolve to overcome that. So when it comes down to it, they have been oppressed and they've lived through it and managed to survive. Like the geisha. I mean, it's a really sad story what geishas had to live through. But there's this beauty in um, their strength. To what extent do you think it's your job as an artist to tell the story versus prompt the viewer to pick up the clues and make their own journey of discovery? For me, it's very important. I do feel a sense of responsibility in conveying that and also making people dig a little bit deeper. I always kind of like to leave a mystery. I'm not sure if I'm real successful at that, but that's (laughs) my goal. So, yeah, I, I do like the story. Your works are so full of detail. You have collage components and text and photographs and lots of colors and gold leaf. There's so much going on in your works. How do you know when to stop on a work? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Um, You know, I I never really want to stop. (laughs) (laughs) I, I know that there's other famous artists who do this and go into museums and keep painting on things and I always kind of feel like I want to do that. But um, but you do have to stop somewhere and move on to the next project. And I guess I do like to have several projects going on at one time. And um, usually when I sign my name, I'm, I'm stopping. In the writing world, authors talk about being planners or pantsers, i.e., you know, you map everything out in advance or you just fly by the seat of your pants and see where it takes you. How do you work? I am definitely by the seat of my pants. <laughs> I, <laughs> I slather that color on there and see what comes out of it. 
So when you sit down with an empty canvas, do you just look at the canvas until inspiration arrives? Or do you think, okay, I want to tell this story? Or do you start with a particular photograph or piece of collage? Or where does it start? Yeah, I mean, sometimes um, it's dictated by the plan, like, oh, I'm going to start a new series and it's going to be about my grandchildren. So I already have that uh, seed planted. And then I will use images for references and go from there. But sometimes I'm really kind of stuck with, oh, what am I going to do next? And (laughs) instead of hemming and hawing about it, I will just start putting color down. Sometimes I tear up paper and just start gluing it. and, And then usually an idea comes out of that. And I think the worst thing an artist can do is to just be still. I read an old interview with you where you talked about having to be a cheerleader for fixing things, both with students and yourself, because it's so easy to waver and let your perfectionist brain take over. How do you overcome that? that oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is so true. You know, um, sometimes when I've taught workshops, we're like cheering that person, glue it, glue it, glue it, <laughs> screw it, screw it, screw it. Like leading the um, team with roots and blues, you know, you just, cause you, it's got to get done. And so you don't have a lot of time to waver with that, but um, it's so true. It's like, Oh my gosh, I have this precious, precious postcard here from the 1930s. Can I tear it up? (laughs) Well, you know, just tear it up because there's a million trillion of them. So, but but you can get hung up on the sentimentality of an object. You really just have to push past that. What I always love about the artistic brain is its ability to constantly find inspiration and then kind of work out how to tell its story. And you are such a prolific creator. Do you have notebooks full of ideas or is your brain a giant filing cabinet? Like where do you store your inspirations? Well, I guess if you came to my studio, um, I just moved into Or Street Studios, by the way, and um, I'm loving it there. But I mean, seriously, it's floor to ceiling full of stuff. And I guess that's my storage unit for ideas. Although I do seek things out and shove things in files and have little packets full of different things. I like to compartmentalize things. And uh, my friend Lee Lockhart has taught me how to sort. And you do that by like things go here and colors that are alike go here. And so... That's kind of fun. Sometimes I just sit in my studio and rip up magazines and books and things like that. Your studio at Orr Street is a wonderland of art making stuff. It is just floor to ceiling ideas and and bits and pieces and colors and textures. And this is years in the making. This studio itself is a work of art. (laughs) Well, thank you. Sometimes it's a bit overwhelming and, um, You know, the beauty of it is none of that is in my house. So I do highly suggest everyone have a studio because, you know, you don't want the laundry over there and you don't want to have to stare at your dishes and those kinds of things. What is your own art collection like? Well, I inherited my mother's art collection and 
she has beautiful things from the mid-century era and um she was pretty wild in her taste and so <laughs> Uh, but I have a local art collection that I really prize. Um, I've got a Frank Stack and a John Fennell and so many things I can't even list. A Jane Mudd. And usually I come by things by default, you know, just uh, they just kind of happen. I would really love a sculpture for my backyard. That's one <laughs> thing I've been <laughs> really wanting to get. So what, what is your next big project? Right now I'm doing a painting that's quite large. I think it's four by five feet of my granddaughter's birthday cake. And that's a lot of fun. Let's see. Well, Roots and Blues is going to happen this year. And that will be in October. So just starting the process of thinking about it. We usually start like April building things, but... We really won't be building any new things this year. And, you know, right now, really just focusing on events that are happening. Or Street Studios is going to have a big fundraising party on the 24th of this month. That's going to be tons of fun. And I just, I love working on things that are greater than me. You know, the, all the people involved are so awesome and so Funding the arts is so important right now. And so Orr Street Studios is very dear to me. And then um, the North Village Arts District is going to have the party on the roof. And so just like collecting art and helping with that for our silent auction is very important. So, you know, party, party, party. <laughs> and <laughs> having fun with the arts is another aspect to it. Well, mixed-media artist Lisa Bartlett's work is visible all over Columbia at Artlandish Gallery on Walnut Street on the side of the building opposite Artlandish, what used to be the bridge, a big mural painting, at All Street Studios, often at Main Squeeze and the Columbia Art League. And you can also visit her website to see more at lisabartlettart.com. Lisa, thank you so much for all that you do to make the Columbia art scene shine extra brightly. <laughs> Back at you, Diana. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. I really just respect and appreciate everything you do for the arts in Colombia. Thanks, Lisa. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, jeweler Alison Norfleet Bringer, firework artist Kyle Selly, singer-songwriter Ray Cardwell, and mixed-media artist Lisa Bartlett. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia.